Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist oncologist and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're gonna get on this podcast. Welcome to season two. This week on Plenary Session, we're in season two. On today's episode, we have Ian Straley in the studio, and he's gonna be doing Question of the Week inspired by the USMLE Step 2 CK. We also have Audrey Tran here for questions from a medical student. And then we have the interview with Dr. Frank Harrell. This is going to be the Bayesian approach to statistical thinking, and you're not gonna want to miss this because Dr. Harrell is the best person to defend this school of thought, and you're gonna find this quite provocative, I hope. And in season two of Plenary Session, we're gonna be trying new things. We're thinking of shrinking our episode time and going to two a week, so stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes Store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ with Ian Straley. Ian Straley is a medical student here at OHSU. He's also one of the two writers of the music of this podcast. Ian, it's great to have you here. It's good to be here. And this is a new segment called Question of the Week. And this time, it's inspired by the USMLE Step 2 CK, which is what you're studying for these days. Is that right? That's right. Real live medical student studying for Step 2. Real live medical student studying for the most important test of your life. (laughs) Except it's not that, is it? Uh, Not from what I've heard. I'm hoping not. Yeah, I think it's not uh, it's not the most important test. Uh, if they were to be prioritized, certainly let's put aside the question of prioritizing based on, on the content. That's a whole nother can of worms, whether or not any of them have content that's too relevant for being a doctor. But certainly in terms of, I think, the stakes, probably step one MCAT are up there in terms of get your nervousness up, right? Mm-hmm. And probably step two and step three are probably not t- too interesting for you. They're kind of... Uh, pretty relaxed. Yeah, just kind of check check it off the list and move on to the next one. I am medicine boards. I think now you're getting you're getting a little nervous again, and then hemonk boards or whatever specialty boards. I think mm-hmm. yeah, that's when it comes back. Well, Ian, yeah, it's great to sense. have you here. Good to be back. We're good to be here. I guess I wanted to know first. You know what what has inspired you to come up with this music? I think listeners should really yeah. I want to know what, what what do you think about when you when you write music. Mm. Uh, so for me, making music is more of a uh, step stepwise process. I'll just come up with a little uh, inception of an idea, and then I'll put it into you know it's like a little melody or uh, maybe a chord progression that I like, mm-hmm. and then I'll record it, and then I listen, kind of just play it a few times over, and then think what does this need added to it, or what would sound good with this, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then. Uh, another melody might come up that kind of mirrors it or fills it out nicely and I'll play around on the keyboard to find something that complements whatever's already recorded and then once that new part's recorded it kind of gives a new dynamic to the sound Mm -hmm. and then 
I may keep taking it in one direction or I might hear another possibility. So when you combine sounds, often the, the sounds have a synergy that makes a new uh, emotion or a new connotation. Mm-hmm. And that's really kind of the magic of music to see where does that end up taking you because you never really know when you start it where you're going to end up. I see, but it's kind of like it layers on each other. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting to me, the way you kind of describe that process. It's, uh, you know, I mean, it's nothing at all like that, but also reminds me a lot of it is, um, you know, a certain type of academic writing when you write a commentary or something like that. For me, sometimes I just have the idea of just the central thesis that just kind of pops out or just the title. Like, this is just a really clever title or just one sentence and then kind of think from there outward, what are the kinds of things that really frame this argument? Where did this sentence come from? It's not that it's just a sentence that came from random. It usually is trying to like really nicely articulate sort of a broader sentiment that I've been stewing about for a while, maybe grumbling about on this podcast, but maybe kind of just grumbling about to friends. But it's kind of, and then, then you start to layer it with different you know ideas that kind of fit that example and, mm, and yeah, build that makes out sense. from there. Similar. Yeah, and then the, the, the concept kind of takes on a life of its own and the mm-hmm. points sort of fall into place and then you have a... F- a full argument that a you didn't full argument that didn't, you didn't fully envision always at the right. outset, right? Yeah, and didn't yeah. even understand as fully as you could have initially. Yeah. You know, I think for some of us, like the mere act of writing, even that writing that we kind of throw away, um, or draft writing, that is the same kind of thing. It's like working through this idea to see where it goes, and then sometimes you look at it at the end and you find holes in. You're like, well, I don't like this idea at all. But sometimes you look through and you're, and you're quite satisfied. Yeah, yeah, I think the same thing with music composition. You know, I have like a a whole folder with hundreds of different songs and only a handful of them like really um have come together in a really nice way and mm. it's it's cool to see like that the, the iterative process at work i see like a drug company 5000 candidate compounds only one comes to market <laughs> yeah pretty much yeah so do you charge um $150,000 per song then ian yeah per per second of song i yeah per $100,000 because yeah. um it's the cost of the the failures you have to include the cost of the failed songs exactly yeah, yeah. you can't just price based on the song ian you could learn a lot from the pharmaceutical <laughs> industry i'm telling you yeah, that's true that's why i listen <laughs> that's why you listen to this <laughs> podcast well it's great to have you here tell us what is this week's question of the week, inspired by, but in no other way related to, the step examinations? Okay. So this is a step two style question, diagnosis, treatment, management. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll just jump right in and read the case. A 60-year-old woman presents to the ED with shortness of breath, progressive over the last three weeks, to the point that she's now struggling to ambulate in her house. Oh, dear. She has no medical history and takes no medications, but she is hypoxic to 89%, and she displays an elevated JVP, mm-hmm. peripheral edema, mm-hmm. and there's an S3 on auscultation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Her labs are positive, only for uh, an elevated BNP of 1,568, uh, a chest x-ray which shows cephalization and curly B lines, mm. and an EKG shows AFib with a rate of 130. Mm. So, what is the next best step in management? Option A, IV metoprolol. Option B, IV TPA. Mm, Option mm-hmm. C, oral aspirin. Mm-hmm. Option D, IV heparin. And finally, option E, IV furosemide. Mm, this is a great question. So you're telling me kind of, uh, it's a middle-aged person. They had a subacute presentation of worsening shortness of breath. I think that's one of the key things here. It's not that it came on all of a sudden. It's that it was gradually getting worse over time. Correct. This person has the S3. Bump-brum, bump-brum, bump-brum. The classic gallop. And that is, uh, is a clue 
that they're putting you in the failure direction. And of course, you have a few other clues. You have curly B lines. You yep. got a BNP that's through the roof. And yes. you also have, what else? Any other signs of heart failure in there? Uh, the perif- JVP. Peripheral edema and JVP. And yeah. JVP. Okay, you pretty much have uh, the, the textbook heart the failure. Clincher case, yeah. The clincher case. Um, you also have AFib. And Correct. the rate is going about 130. Yep. I see. I guess what I think they're getting at here, I think the little bit of the trick is, is um, I think they're trying to push you into the question of uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Is this a person with AFib RVR that put themselves into failure in whom the heart rate is going really, really fast, in whom you might be thinking about volume overload and you might think that you'd actually improve forward flow if you can actually lower that heart rate? Or is this somebody who has a long-standing cardiomyopathy, probably has had AFib for a long time, gradually gotten into failure, and probably needs some relief from the failure? And I guess the fact that it's going 130, the fact there was a subacute pleasant presentation, all point me in the direction that this is somebody with failure first, and then the AFib has probably been there for a while. Mm-hmm. And so I think the right answer to the question is Lasix right now. You've got to diurese this person, get some fluid off, and hopefully that will improve through the Starling Law, improve their contractility and maybe make them feel a little bit better. Starling's Law, indeed. That's the. Is that what they say? Yeah, that's that's the uh, the answer is the furosemide, so that's, the Lasix. That's right, and uh, and any other um, any other pearls in that question that we're missing? Um, I think you you got at it with the the AFib being the sort of the red herring that they threw in, mm. and they wanted us to think about you know. Do we give metoprolol for AFib? Because um, obviously you think about rate control, but with a rate of 130 um, and signs of you know clear overload, yeah. sort of the overload takes priority. And yeah. if you treat that, it could if you if you lower that, it might uh, it might help the fib. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And think, if you yeah. if you give the metoprolol before correcting the volume, it might not be so good. It might actually worsen. <laughs> it might make the because, person really bad off. Yeah, the heart's functioning less then, and the volume overload gets worse. Yeah, I think the other uh, thing that makes me think about is that you know this is somebody who might also have a, ch- a high Chad's two vasc and probably um, in the near future actually end up on anticoagulation. So at some point they might require anticoagulation. But you know with AFib, even with sort of medium Chad's two vasc scores, you're talking about year long risk that. It's usually in the single digits, and the, the instantaneous risk is very small. Um, so sort of this acute need to anticoagulate AFib in, in a split-second decision, you know, it's usually not that kind of decision, certainly not for, for mm-hmm. FIB. Yeah, that's more like prophylactic. Yeah, it's more like long-term kind of risk management strategy, mm-hmm. nothing you need to sprint to the pharmacy to get. But I think it's a good question. That's a, that's a, that's a good question, a solid question there. Uh, I, got no too, and I, got, I don't have too many p- complaints about that question. Sounds well, good, yeah. Thank you, Ian. That's been Question of the Week with Ian Straley. You'll be back, though. I'll be back. Okay. We'll do it again. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ, joined by Audrey Tran, who at this point should need no introduction. She's the maker with Ian Straley of the music of this podcast, and she is the co-host of Questions from a Medical Student. So, we're back with Audrey for the second week of Questions from a Medical Student. The first week we talked about mentorship and we got a sense of Audrey's broad interest in medicine and beyond. And now we're back. Thank you, Audrey, for joining us. Thank you for having me. So what's up on the docket this week for Questions from a Medical Student? Yeah, so my question this week is, how do I go about deciding a specialty? Oh boy. Mm-hmm. You got a lot of tough questions to start. <laughs> I, I think honestly, I mean, 
especially someone who has a lot of broad interests, this has always been all these kind of decision-making questions have been very important to me. That's good. I like um, I, I, I like that you have broad interests, and I like that you, you like to think deeply on these topics. So I guess I'd say the same disclaimer I said at the beginning of Questions from a Medical Student Part 1, which is that I... Uh, this is only what I believe, and uh, it is not evidence-based advice. Unfortunately, there does not th- that that does not exist for most fields of medicine. And I think you should always ask multiple faculty members to get a range of opinions. And then, of course, like all people soliciting opinions, you should take the opinion that most resonates with what you thought of all along from the get-go and go <laughs> with that. So, I think you really only get a sense of what specialty you want to choose. Uh, after you've done the third year of medical school, the clerkships. And ideally, I think the two key clerkships you got to get through are the med- internal medicine clerkship, that three-month stretch, and maybe that general surgery, the surgical clerkship, that three-month stretch. Maybe it's help- always helpful to have the pediatrics and OB-GYN kind of clerkships, um, and maybe even the psychiatry clerkship. But I guess one of the big distinctions you want to make in your mind is, are you a surgical person or are you not a surgical person? Um, mm-hmm. I think it is definitely a long and arduous training to become a surgeon. I think much of being a surgeon is a physical, tactile activity that involves doing something with your hands for a period of time. And I think um, you should never become a surgeon because you think it's cool or it sounds great or you think <laughs> surgeons are somehow you know marvelous people. I think you should become a surgeon because um, it's really the only thing you can imagine yourself doing and it has to be worth a lot to you to want to do that um, because it's really an uphill battle because I think that residency is difficult. It's not an easy um, you know better part of a decade really to train to be a surgeon. It's, it's a long ordeal. So I think the first kind of decision you got to come into your mind is are you going to pursue the surgical path or not. And I think for me, I probably didn't really have that click in my head until towards the end of the third year or the beginning of the fourth year, um, where it kind of clicked in my mind, which is that, you know what, it's just not going to be able to um, do it for me. It's not the thing that ties together all of my interests outside mm-hmm. of medicine, and it won't preserve that balance I want to have between the kind of things I want to think about and work on and the kinds of things I want to do clinically day in and day out. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the first question, and, and it really does help to be able to be immersed in it and to see what is the culture like, um, and is it a culture that's right for you, and is it worth it for you to endure that culture for however many years it might take. Right. Then the next two things I always tell people is you got to think about, I think, uh, and I frame it this way, and I hope listeners who disagree with me will write and tell me why they disagree, but um, this is how I have always thought of it. There are some specialties in medicine that are driver specialties and some are passenger specialties. Mm. Driver specialties to me, in my mind, are the specialties of medicine where you're really in the driver's seat for the care that someone's given. And that is like an internal medicine subspecialties, the pediatric specialties, radiation oncology, surgery. You are meeting with the patient and you're helping guide the patient along. Should you get procedure X or diagnostic test Y? Should you be doing this? What else should you do? I think those of us who work in internal medicine we always act as if, perhaps we feel as if, we're in the driver of driver's seat because we coordinate the care mm-hmm. of a lot of specialties. We really are the driver, the the driving force of that care, and we really get to shape the decisions that affect multi-organ systems and balance the needs of multi-specialties. Um, but you know, that's not to say that can't be done effectively if you're a great neurosurgeon or a great urologist or whatever, you know, a mm-hmm. different driver specialty. I think there are some specialties that are passenger specialties, 
Those are specialties where their job is to facilitate healthcare, make it go as smoothly and accurately and fairly and honestly as possible, but they do not necessarily sit in the driver's seat of healthcare choices and decisions. The fields I think about for this are radiology. Um, yes, they're excellent. They're some of the best people at reading imaging, but they don't decide when and how imaging is deployed. That's usually done by a, you know somebody on the on the driver's side. Um, anesthesiology. They are wonderful people at being able to take you through something very, very complex with very mm -hmm. little risk um, and very little discomfort, but yet they don't decide what, whether or not the surgery is needed or not needed. Mm -hmm. um, I think about maybe even perioperative medicine. I mean, very rarely does a periop clinic doctor say, hey, don't do this surgery, risks outweigh benefits, but usually their job is to facilitate what other people have decided. I think about pathology. Pathologists are in the passenger seat in the sense that they are often instrumental in making the diagnosis, but they do not decide whether or not the patient will get care or not, or what will happen, what will the choices be made in the patient's care. And I think that you need to decide if you wanna be in the driver's seat or the passenger seat, um, knowing that for some of us, psychologically, we are disposed to being in the driver's seat. Some of us are psychologically disposed to being in the passenger seat. We derive great comfort from that. And it also perhaps may even eliminate some of the anxiety and stress that comes from being in the driver's seat, which is, to some degree, the stress of the responsibility of the choices you make over other choices. So that's one dimension I think about. The next dimension I think about is this dimension called things to do or hours to work. Mm -hmm. And this is a dimension that I think is increasingly kind of dividing fields. Um, there are some specialties of medicine that are based on things to do, and others are based on hours to work. So an oncologist in clinic, we have 15 patients to see on the day. The day will be over when you're done seeing 15 patients. Will that be at 3.15, 4.15, 5.15, 6.15, 7.15? I don't know exactly when it'll be done. I know on average when it'll be done, but the individual needs of people will only be sated when I finished all my things to do for the workday. Um, uh, it, it is an unpredictable end, end date of the schedule. Um, I think that uh, the, the other opposite is the shift work schedule. ER doctors, anesthesiologists, even trauma surgeons are now engaging mm -hmm. in shift work where they know they're gonna be there from seven to seven, seven to three, they know their hours. Mm -hmm. And I think particularly among people of our generation, shift work is very alluring. You can say with certainty, I can meet you for 5 p.m. for dinner at this place. Actually, that's pretty early for dinner, but maybe a drink before dinner. Um, I can meet you, you know, here and now at this time, um, and I know I'm going to be out of work at that time. You know, you know you're going to be out of work at 3.45 when you're relieved. Sure. Um, that's not something you can really say, you know, when I have a busy clinic day, I, I just, I don't promise that I'll be, I'll be out by five. I don't promise I'll be out by six. I hope I'll be out between at least six to seven at the latest. Right. Uh, and this is not Dana Farber. I'm not going to be here till nine <laughs> o'clock. But, you know, uh, we're, not, we're not crazy people, but we still try to have like lives outside of work. But, you know, it's an unpredictable schedule. Um, I think that, I don't know. My bias, of course, is that I've chosen one of the fields where it's things to do versus hours to work. Part of what frustrated me as a trainee was when I was in the ER and I was on a shift and I knew my shift ended at a certain time, but the last four hours were very, very slow. Mm -hmm. That to me was like pulling teeth because I was just looking at that clock thinking, right. you know, give me something to do. Mm -hmm. You know, give, give me a bunch of patients to see. I'm happy to do that. But if I just have to sit here and do nothing for four hours, I'm going to go bananas because I don't right. think I can do it. Yeah. Um, but maybe my friend is, my, you know, and I should I say this, having drawn these distinctions, my dearest friend is an anesthesiologist, one, one of my roommates in medical school. 
um, somebody who I care deeply about. And his personality and that field are so uh, hand in glove. You know, it's just mm-hmm. perfect. He's really good at his job. He really derives a lot of satisfaction from it. He likes the fact that it's shift work. He likes the fact he's not in the driver's seat, but he likes the fact that he's really making a difference every day and he can really try to be excellent at his job, which mm-hmm. I think he is because he also does regional nerve block and he is it's quite a skill at that. Um, so those are some dimensions. And I think there's this other dimension this is something that Adam Sifu told me, which is you should always think about what the worst thing about that job is and whether or not you like it or not. What is the worst thing about that job? What is the thing you dislike the most? What yeah. is the type of um, complaint that is the most frustrating or challenging? And is that something you think you'll be able to be do 20, 30, 40 years from now? Um, and a few other scattered thoughts, if you'll allow mm-hmm. me. I guess one is I would say it is a deep mistake to choose any field based on what you think the residency will be like with one exception. I mean, if you want to do surgery, I think you should go into it with enough um, enthusiasm that you'll be able to endure that very difficult training. But I think that a lot of people might be choosing between specialties that have maybe roughly equal hours, but one may have more call than the other call. Um, You know, feels like dermatology and radiation oncology, because their call is so light, they often can kind of get Mm -hmm. um, a lot of interest in those fields, Um, but for other reasons as well, but in part because, I mean, if there is somebody choosing that field only because the call is light, that is problematic. And that's not a really a smart thing to do because this is something you're going to be doing for 20, 30, 40 years. It's not something you're going to be doing for five, six, seven years. And even though residency feels like a long time, one day you'll wake up and you'll be four years out of residency mm-hmm. and it'll feel like a distant memory and you'll be an older person. So, uh, you know, that, <laughs> that, that's what's going to happen. Um, what else? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's all great. But I think I think for me, yeah. Um, one of the things I'm also just trying to suss out is the experience of having, of understanding that, you know, our core, our clinical year, even, even if three, if it's three months or, or two months or whatnot, it's still, that's such a short time I, in my book to really yeah. understand, like, what is this field? What are the, what are the values of this field? Or like, what, how do I help? And, and sometimes I think I've heard from upperclassmen just how they've had either really good positive experiences or maybe not so great experiences and that's really colored their own ex- opinion about about the field or the specialty itself um and I, I know that that's important right because sometimes that speaks to culture sometimes it speaks to you know what to expect in residency but i think there's also some part of me that's also feeling like okay but this isn't the full story i feel like even mm-hmm. even though i've kind of gone in day in day out this is still a simulated uh, you know, clinical experience, even though I'm seeing real people, but it's mm-hmm. like, it is not the full, this might not be exactly reflecting exactly what would it be, would be like if I mm-hmm. wasn't attending or, you know, again, down the road. So how do you, how do you tease apart that experience that you have knowing that it, it maybe provides some context or, or hints at what it could be like, but it may not necessarily, like, for example, but if you had excellent, mm-hmm. the best like residency team, the best attending mm-hmm. for these four weeks, mm-hmm. But is that not, always going to happen? Average, right? it's not, is that is that average? Is that always going to happen, or is you know, did you just get lucky? You know. No. Oh, well, listeners are already going to get the strong sense that Audrey Chan is a very smart person because it's a very <laughs> smart question. Uh, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. Um, and just to kind of further bolster your point, which is that you know, I had had experience on the oncology service, and I had had some attendings with whom I felt disconnected from, and I felt very different from, and perhaps 
I may not have always seen eye to eye with their clinical decision making, and thus I kind of thought of as oncology in a certain light, perhaps even a, a poor light. Mm-hmm. Then I had, had a different experience a little bit later, where I'd worked with attendings who I felt deeply connected with, deeply their decisions resonated with me at my core. I felt very persuaded mm-hmm. by them and even inspired by them, mm-hmm. and um, and then suddenly it became a feel that wow, I can see myself doing this. You know, it, yeah. it flipped in my mind. Okay, and so I guess I would say that I 100% agree with you that there is, that these are just limited snapshots of something and it will be very difficult to really fully understand all of the nuances and the ways in which a field can be just from a, a brief moment being you know dropped into like a foreign country and then pulled mm-hmm. out like a month exactly, later yeah. you know it's like a, it's like a just a dip exactly. in dip your toe in you know mm-hmm. you, and boom you're pulled out um <laughs> mm-hmm. okay uh, so I, I, I that totally resonates with me um at the same time i also think that um, okay, so then to some degree what we're saying is that our choices in life are a bit um, uh, contingent on externalities that are kind of random and, mm-hmm. okay, but I guess I'm kind of comfortable, I mean, that's also kind of okay, that if, if it is kind of random stuff that pushes you one way or the other, um, maybe that's not the end of the world, because the other part of me thinks that what if, what if somebody, like, what if different things had happened to my life and I was an ICU doctor here on faculty? Mm-hmm. And I was an intensivist. I did six weeks of service and I did my research or something like that. I think I think I would be kind of just as content about, you know, my clinical care. And I would feel like I'm making a difference. And I would feel like that's very important um, work I'm doing as well. And just to kind of say that, like, even in oncology these days, we often, um, you know, get we were specialized into like specific tumor types. And over the four years I've worked here, I've ended up doing a couple of different things and sometimes a little bit more and sometimes a little bit less and moving around a little bit. And I don't want to get into all those details. But (laughs) long story short is things I thought that might not have interested me as much when you're kind of dropped in and you're asked, will you help out here and do this for a few Mm -hmm. weeks or a few months? It starts to interest me and I start to see what's really kind of interesting and puzzling and kind of curious about it. And so I think that somebody who's smart and curious, you're also able to tolerate a lot of range. Um, Mm -hmm. As long as you know that, you know, you kind of like this field, you kind of like the people, you've had good experiences, you've had bad experiences. you know, don't make a decision based on just one experience. Mm-hmm. I'd heard a rumor once that there was a school of medicine that had students on a neurosurgery clerkship and that the hours of this clerkship were very limited, um, mm-hmm. that they protected the students really strongly on this neurosurgery clerkship and such that the student body really wanted to do neurosurgery mm-hmm. uh, because who doesn't want to be a brain doctor like <laughs> Ben Carson, who's such, so smart, so smart, <laughs> such a smart brain doctor. Who doesn't want to be a smart brain doctor like that? But anyway, so, you know, well, they're not all smart. But um, so, okay, so so they had this really favorable mm-hmm. experience. And then a lot of people did neurosurgery out of this particular medical school. But then a lot of people were dropping out of the residencies right. because they found that it wasn't all like this particular institution's sure. culture. So, you know, for those kind of fields like neurosurgery and orthopedics and all these things, those are fields where people say you got to do sub eyes for all sorts of reasons. But also doing sub eyes is good because you get to sample the culture in different right. spaces. Right. Well, thank you so much, Audrey, for this week's Questions from a medical student. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Okay, I'm back in plenary session HQ, joined via Skype with Dr. Frank Harrell. Dr. Harrell is perhaps the expert in statistics when it comes to clinical trial statistics. His reputation precedes him on many fronts, and he's also active on Twitter. And he is going to take us through um, the continuing discussion of frequentist versus Bayesian analysis. And just to give you some background, 
Dr. Harrell is now a professor of statistics at Vanderbilt University, uh, a position he has held uh, since the early 2000s. And he has also had the chance of taking part in numerous FDA advisory uh, panels and serving on the Cardiorenal Advisory Committee in the late 1980s. And he has certainly kept a close eye on cardiovascular trials that led to registration of novel products over many, many years. And, and I've heard that he is a converted Bayesian, that you weren't always a Bayesian, Dr. Harrell. You were a frequentist initially, uh, but something along your path changed your way of thinking. Is that right? That's right. And my most popular blog article is about my journey from frequentist to Bayesian statistics. And I, I think it's uh, an interesting phenomenon to look at how people evolve in their thinking over their careers. And I tend to uh, be more interested in people that change their minds about things than those that trust their professors for their whole lives. Hmm. So my professors told me that Bayes was a bad idea and I actually believed them for several years, and I finally figured out they were wrong. <laughs> and uh, I think that's well put, so we're going to get into that. But I think I think you're right, that it actually does take... Um, uh, there's something to be said for those things that you've made sort of an intellectual journey on in your own career, where you start one way and you end quite a different way. And um, although my time has been short, there have been a few things that have surprised me over the years as I kind of kept an eye on them. So I've... The other thing I should say about you is that, you know, I think many, many people in the field of, of medical, I don't know, I want to be quite broad, and I think many people in the field of medicine think of you as just sort of a, a superb teacher, and many people credit you as having taught them some of the fundamentals on how to interpret clinical trials and how to make sense of statistics. So I think your legend as a teacher um, might even surpass your, your legend as a researcher. So thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. So... I know you had the chance to listen to our prior discussion with Dr. Panel, um, and I was wondering if you might just start at, at, with how you think of the two different ways of thinking. Uh, I told, you know, that very little tired nugget I know about the Reverend Bayes and about, um, you know, some of the early work on Fisher, um, but how do you think about these two different schools of thought um, sort of philosophically? How do, you, how, do, how do you think they view the world differently? Yeah, I think it's, it's pretty drastically different, and you can get interested and more knowledgeable about Bayes from both a very philosophical view as well as a very practical viewpoint. And I was converted uh, because of the practical viewpoint of David Spiegelhalter, who is one of the greatest biostatisticians that's ever lived. He's in the UK at Cambridge. And um, he always um, wrote about Bayes in terms of problem solving and not philosophy. Over time, I've been preaching the philosophy probably more than people want to hear, but I also am very impressed with the problem solving. So uh, philosophically, it gets at the heart of what probability means. And there's a famous statistician that was actually instrumental in uh, Bletchley Park in breaking the uh, German Enigma code, mm -hmm. uh, along with Alan Turing, who said that probability means nothing and it means everything. <laughs> uh, so it, it really means what you want it to mean and there's just several rules you have to have like a probability between zero and one and the sum of all the probabilities of all the possibilities has to sum to one. Mm -hmm. And uh, aside from that there's there's not much that a probability has to mean so people can choose to make it mean a relative frequency which is what's used in the traditional frequentist school, or they can choose it to be a relative uh, veracity or relative evidence, belief, 
uh, you can call it anything you want, and it actually has complete validity and gives us an algebra for manipulating quantities and coming up with um, uh, summaries of evidence. And it allows us to play the odds in a way that leads to good decisions in not only our clinical trial interpretation, but in our everyday life. Hmm. So at the heart of the philosophical difference is uh, allowing probabilities to mean more than relative frequencies, and people turn to examples of one-time events to really motivate that. Like, what's the probability World War III will happen? Well, that's that's a one-time event, and you could never validate it by looking at long-term relative frequencies. Mm-hmm. But you can put evidence together to still come up with an estimate between zero and one. Mm-hmm. The other key thing that distinguishes Bayes is that the sort of probabilities we calculate are probabilities that condition on the past in order to predict things that we don't already know, which is the future or the current state of nature that's not been revealed to us yet, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. such as, is this drug really efficacious or not? So we're trying to bring evidence for efficacy of a drug or a procedure. Uh, We know that we have the data, but we don't know the true state of nature uh, and the forces in play that generated the data, and Bayes is all involved in uncovering that. So the idea of having probabilities of things you don't know based on the conditions that you know is super key to understanding Bayes, whereas frequent is you're saying if the drug has no effect, what's the probability of of the data being this surprising or more surprising? Right. And that is that is a transposed conditional in the language of logic and right. probability. That's a transposed conditional, just as uh, the probability of getting a positive test if you have disease, which is sensitivity. That is a transposed conditional that doesn't really lead to decision making. Mm. I see. So I guess what you're saying is, I mean, the classic p-value is uh, if there were no difference between the experimental and the control arm, what's the probability of seeing this result or a more extreme result? You're saying that doesn't ask a question people actually care about. That's not what we care about. We care about does this drug actually offer a benefit? And that is not exactly the same thing as 1 minus the p-value. That's the p-value fallacy. Exactly right. And there's there's a, a key thing to understand there is the way uh, progress happens, the way science happens, is that people solve problems that they're able to solve with the technology available at the time. And so uh, p-values could be calculated on a piece of paper. Um, so the problem of that people really wanted to address, which is the problem is, does something have an effect, uh, was turned into a problem that was different, that's not that relevant, but it was a problem that could be solved. So it's a very common thing in, in human nature to find a problem that we can solve rather than solving the problem that we actually have. Hmm. And that's exactly what happened with p-values. So I, I guess I see the first part of it, which is that I, I can I can totally understand how, um, you know, by with paper and hand and the table, you can calculate a p-value and, you know, come to some conclusion about, about you know, with a frequentist an, uh, analysis. But what I, what I guess I don't know is, uh, in the Bayesian method of analysis, that cannot be done, can that also be done by hand? If you had to calculate a post posterior probability Bayesian uh, by hand, or is that more difficult? So when you were interviewing Alan, uh, he talked about the the beta prior yes. and how that leads to, it's, it's essentially like adding data to the current data. 
uh, it, you can think of that as a useful trick. Yes. Um, and people were dealing with beta distributions back in the, well, at least by the early 1900s. Um, and so some of that was uh, tabulated in, in long tables that then people could use and do the easy calculations uh, by hand. Yes. Uh, you can do a t-test pretty much by hand if the sample size is not huge. You can do a binomial test by hand pretty easily. And so, yes, many of those could be done by hand. Um, and uh, some of the Bayesian, more to your question, some of the Bayesian methods, especially when you have things like conjugate priors, could be done by hand with just a little bit of work. But that that made people like me, who was, when I was in graduate school and we were only taught conjugate priors, it made me think it was an artificial construct and it was really kind of gamed and the problems that were being tackled were the ones that were easy to compute. So it wasn't until the computational tools really came about, led by David Spiegelhalter, who developed the bugs system, mm -hmm. uh, that we could actually solve problems that were not just sort of toy problems. And then you could start to see that Bayes was not really an arbitrary way to solve things. It was a true full modeling approach. Uh, and then Bayes started to get a lot more interesting because it wasn't seen as an artificial contrivance. I see. So I guess there are two things I want to ask about there. So I guess one thing we should talk about up front is that I had heard as feedback from the first episode is this beta distribution. You know, we had talked about it, and I think Dr. Panel was talking about how it, it was – he portrayed it as a flat distribution. But it actually – I've been reading more. It can take any shape you want it to take. It's actually a very flexible distribution. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it can't go uh, up and down and back up. But it, 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 he was talking about when alpha equals beta equals one. Yeah. Uh, so that's just another way of writing a flat uh, yeah. probability density function. But it can take all kinds of shapes. I see. And it's frequently used in the binomial case when you're talking about a simple proportion. I see. Okay, and then back to this. So just to unpack for the listeners, um, when you say conjugate prior, what do you mean by that? So somebody's doing a hand calculation, a very simple, uh, contrived kind of scenario, and they use a conjugate prior. What does that mean? It's just a prior that when you multiply it by the data distribution, which is your likelihood function, that product happens to be something that we can deal with with standard math. Hmm. So it, that product is something that you can integrate um, without resorting to numerical integration. I you see. can integrate it analytically and write down the posterior probability as uh, as a beta distribution with a different alpha and beta, for example. Um, and so it just means everything simplifies. You can write the result analytically. You can calculate the posterior probability without much computing power. I see, I see. You don't need to sort of uh, model the integration through like trapezoid method or something like that. Right. You don't need to use complicated numerical integration or um, and any analytic integration you do follows from the usual rules of calculus. I see. OK. OK. Fair enough. Uh, OK. So so where do you where do you want to jump in? Do you want to jump in on these studies or do you want to give a little more sort of your thinking about Bayes? Let me, let me tell you something I've heard and, and see if you agree. Somebody was telling me, uh, you know, they called me up. To t they felt very passionate about this episode. So they called me up on the phone and they're telling me their push for Bayes. And they said, you know, like like many people, they they also didn't start out as a, as a Bayesian. They were frequentist, but they became a Bayesian. Um, and in part because they felt this they felt this to be true. They felt that everybody 
everybody at the end of the day is a Bayesian. Just some people actually say they are and are out and are upfront with what their priors are and what their pretest probability beliefs are. And other people just keep that secret and interpret trials with that in the back of their mind, but they're not disclosing that to others. And so Bayesian, we're all Bayesians, this person's argument was, just some people are more open about it and formal about it. And that's the beauty of Bayes uh, and that no one is truly a frequentist. What do you think about that? I think it's three quarters true. Okay. I think what what is maybe slightly better way to say it is that someone can claim to be fully a frequentist and they can operate fully as a frequentist for three fourths of the uh, of the stages you have to go through in doing the research, and then they get to that final stage and the things that they have to invoke in order to translate the uh, data evidence into a conclusion or a decision is something that has to go beyond the frequentist world. And it essentially is Bayesian in a secret sort of way. In other words, you could solve for what their utility function is that would make you able to translate a p-value to a certain decision. Um, and that's something that is not really the what the frequentist world informs us about. Uh, but it, it's a very uh, subjective process that goes in the mind. And so one of the things that happens is you look, uh, as in that Gusto paper, what do we know about thrombolytic drugs in general? And what does that tell us about a new thrombolytic drug uh, or a different delivery uh, or dosing of a thrombolytic drug? Uh, so we start looking at class effects of drugs. And um, we start bringing in context and the other thing that is brought in is multiplicity. So if you have multiple endpoints in a clinical trial, mm -hmm. you may be looking at the second endpoint and somehow want to discount that because it wasn't the primary endpoint. So the way you do that discounting is highly subjective. It's a, it's one of the most subjective things you could ever you could ever come up with because there's no mathematical theory in frequentist school about how multiplicity adjustments should be done. It's completely ad hoc. So you have to do something in the frequentist world to come up with your conclusion and, and bring in the context. And the Bayesians would say, well, we have a very formal mechanism for doing that. It involves a prior distribution that you may not like, but the prior distribution is out front and center. You can't cheat because anybody would catch you mm -hmm. uh, in how you're bringing the subjective component into it. Whereas if you choose to do a multiplicity adjustment and I don't, um, we don't have any guiding principle to say who's really right, and it's arbitrary. Let me ask you about this. It's arbitrary. So let, let's imagine, you know, a clinical study that, I mean, hypothetical clinical study that ran with 10 endpoints that they measured. Maybe let's say hypothetically, they didn't even pre-specify the primary endpoint. We just have 10 endpoints. I guess I would say my understanding of the multiplicity corrections and frequentist methodology, you tell me if I'm wrong, is probably the single most permissive way to look at that is to look at each of the 10 endpoints as if they occurred in isolation. In other words, make no adjustment at all for your cutoffs. The, the most restrictive way, you're nodding, the most restrictive way to look at that would be the Bonfer method, which would actually, um, you know, basically divide by the number of multiple comparisons. And then all of the other false discovery methods are something in between, Bonferroni being most stringent and no adjustment at all being most permissive. Is that an accurate way to think about things? Well, there's there's one step more stringent than what you described, okay. which is what the policy of New England Journal of Medicine is, is if you have a, a primary and a secondary yeah. endpoint, uh, say the primary endpoint is not significant, so-called significant. You can't even look at the secondary endpoint, Bonferroni or not. 
So that's that is the most restricted. That would be like a hierarchical testing procedure. I mean, this, yeah, okay. testing procedure, hierarchical. Yes, yes. I see. Yeah. Okay. So, and in fact, we've seen that sometimes with trials. The Bayesians have a field with that sort of thinking. So it's not only that you have to figure out how to treat the hierarchy and what adjustment to make, but if you had multiple treatments being compared, most frequentists would say, if you want to compare treatment A with treatment B, you need to discount the findings because you also compared treatment C with treatment D. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Bayesians would say that really violates the rules of evidence. The evidence about A versus B should come from considerations about A and B, I see. not C and D. That's fair. Uh, at the same time, I, I mean, I guess, b- back to the hierarchical thing just real quick. My, I mean, my understanding of the reason why they're so strict about that is that a lot of these statistical analysis plans, um, they are, they, they, they purposely built a hierarchy uh, because it actually, they actually think they're more likely to win that way. Like they pick the first thing they're going to look at is something they really think they're going to win on, so that they're able to look at the second and third and keep as much alpha as possible. Um, and then it's only you know because of kind of dumb luck that they actually lost on the first thing that they they kind of feel like they got their hands in their pockets. They're not allowed to do anything. Uh, is that an accurate way to to put it, or is it? I mean, yeah, yeah. I think it's accurate, and it's led to incredible silliness. Okay. So if you ever look at the Corvada law. Um, cardiovascular trial, uh, the first endpoint was improving exercise uh, duration, I think, and it was negative on that endpoint. Down the list somewhere was all-cause mortality, and it had a 45% reduction in all-cause mortality. It was unthought of. It was underpowered, uh, but the hazard ratio, I think, was 0.55. And Many statisticians and the FDA wanted to not allow the sponsor to look at mortality because it wasn't pre-specified as the number one endpoint. So the Bayesians have a totally different view of discounting evidence, which is you settle in a prior distribution for the mortality effect before the study's done. And if you think there's any plausibility at all that this drug would reduce mortality, you would have a prior that doesn't rule that out. I see. And then, and then that prior will calibrate your final result uh, to the mortality effect that you're going to quote completely regardless of what effect it has on exercise duration. I see. And in order to do this, in order to do this right, um, the Bayesian has to articulate at the outset of the trial for all of the things we're going to measure, what do I really think the prior probability is? Is that right? Yeah, you you have two modes are, that are possible. You have the pre-specified mode, which is going to get the most uh, impact on the science, uh, scientific public, uh, or you have the sensitivity analysis mode, which is kind of the after the fact, like this BMJ yes. reanalysis, yes. which is also very valuable. It doesn't have quite the clout. Uh, as having pre-specified priors. I see. Okay, um, you mentioned this earlier. Let's just jump into this. This is the paper, Special Communications, JAMA 1995, Placing Trials in Context Using Bayesian Analysis, Gusto Revisited by Reverend Bayes, by James Brophy and Lawrence Joseph. Um, this is a this is a very seminal clinical trial that came out in cardiovascular literature, um, which tested whether or not the recombinant tis- tissue plasminogen activator was superior to the older drug streptokinase for acute myocardial infarction um, and occluded arteries. Uh, and this was um, the first clinical trial, Gusto, 
that showed a superiority in a couple of things. It showed that there was a reduction in deaths of about maybe one percentage point from 7.3 to 6.3. There was... A slight increase in stroke, which has always been seen with, t- with recombinant tissue plasminogen activator, here from half of 1% to six-tenths of 1%. And then the combined endpoint of like clinical benefit, which was the death or stroke. And that was also favorable with the intervention. And this Gusto trial was a large randomized trial of, what, 30,000 people? Um, 41,000, I think. 40, 000, yeah, and thought to be a very definitive study. Um, but in contrast, there had been two prior studies, um, the uh, GISI trial, GISI-2, and ISIS-3, um, which were smaller studies, but still very large, I mean, in the tens of thousands range. Um, and those two had reached kind of um, different conclusions. Uh, the ISIS-3, at least, uh, it looked pretty null. Uh, and GISI-2, there was still an improvement in all-cause death, um, but there was perhaps more stroke uh, kind of leading to a less of a clinical benefit. Um, and this paper basically says, when you look at these three trials, you can look at them separately, or you can try to incorporate GISI-2 and ISIS-3 in the interpretation of GUSTO. Um, and you had you had a chance to work on the GUSTO trial, is that right? Right. So what do you think of this paper? What do we need to know about it? Well, I think uh, it raises a number of interesting issues. So the, the most important issue and the toughest one, I think, is... Um, when you do have prior knowledge about a specific compound, uh, how much of that knowledge do you use, yes. and does how similar does the dosing need to be? And and of course the molecular makeup, if there's any differences there. Um, but the the main thing of focus in Gusto one was the accelerated dosing of TPA. Yeah. And the the studies from Europe were the non-accelerated dosing of TPA. So how much you count the prior data from these really great big previous clinical trials is is a question for the pharmacologist and the cl- clinical experts um, and i don't really have any insight about that it seems to me that it would be relevant and i just don't know i just don't know how relevant so with Bayes, you have a way to say how relevant do you want to allow the previous data. So this is a very active area at FDA for uh, barring adult data to inform pediatric clinical trials because you can't recruit enough kids in clinical trials. There's not enough sick kids to go around like there are sick adults. Mm. And so it's it's getting to be very uh, accepted to say uh, we're going to say that the adults are applicable to kids with a certain degree of applicability. Mm-hmm. And that applicability might be, let's say, between 0.3 and 0.7. And so that's a mixture of priors that you use in the Bayesian context that is a very uh, sensible way to model the probability that adults are applicable to kids. So you could do the same thing here. Um, and they did something a little bit like that, but they did something that I need to reread to make sure I remember it correctly because I didn't have a chance to read this part again. I I think for some of their calculations, they're using a spike prior. And this is something that um, George Diamond, a cardiologist that wrote much about Bayes and and clinical trial reinterpretation, tended to do. And if they did it like George Diamond did, he would put a prior probability that the null hypothesis is exactly true of something that's greater than zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he might put a 0.5. So he said the, the, 
the prior probability that the treatment effect is exactly zero is 0.5. And I think that's part of the calculations that are here. I just need to read it in more detail to see how much of a part it is. But there's a lot of controversy over using spike priors. That's an attempt to make Bayesian more like p-values, which give give the default to the null, null hypothesis. And most Bayesians really react quite negatively to a discontinuity in the prior distribution. That represents a discontinuity in knowledge. So you're having special, special belief that the treatment has exactly zero effect. And if you were to ask, well, what is the probability that treatment has a 0.0001 effect yeah. on a risk difference scale? You're saying that probability is magically lower than the probability that you change that one to a zero in that fifth or whatever decimal place. So the idea that knowledge is discontinuous and there's special probabilities of exactly zero is not usually accepted. And John Tukey, one of the greatest statisticians that ever lived, that invented untold number of things, uh, he made a comment about this once, and just and so did other big name statisticians. Uh, that it's just not reasonable to to have a belief that a treatment has exactly zero effect. Just think about uh, the way you walk into a patient's room, um, having no chance of changing their blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that just doesn't make any sense. I see. I mean, if you look at table two with me, let's let me see if I can articulate this and see if if you agree. So this is like their their bottom line table, I think, where they've kind of looked through this and 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 they've kind of reached their conclusion. And and the way I read it is this: they say in the in the leftmost column, um, you know, based on GC two and ISIS three, you could have the following prior belief. Um, in the superiority of TPA over streptokinase. You could have a 100% belief in these trials, meaning that you think TPA is probably not much better, or a 0% belief in these trials, so you have basically as if they didn't occur. And if you have a 100% belief in these trials, the probability, I'm looking at the third column now, the probability that TPA has a net clinical benefit over streptokinase is, even with the Gusto trial, is, uh, is 0.05. So a low probability. The probability that TPA has a net benefit of 1% over streptokinase is less than 0.001. So basically they're saying that if you trusted these prior trials, um, the probability that this one trial is going to move you that much is very, very low. In contrast, if you had no prior belief in these prior studies, uh, in the third column at the bottom, the probability that TPA has a net benefit over streptokinase is now 0.998, so almost a sure thing. But the probability that TPA's net benefit is at least 1% is still only about 1 in 3, or 0.36, because the probability distribution is actually quite broad, and that 1% is, is just the peak of that distribution, but a lot of it is beneath that. Is that an accurate way to read this? I think so. And I I think the key question here is exactly how the prior was formed and whether it used a discontinuity as I thought it might have. Um, And I remember when the paper first came out and I read it in more detail uh, that I was concerned about the prior being too conservative. And I redid their calculations using a more typical prior distribution, which was, uh, and, and the study was really done on the the odds ratio metric, not the risk difference metric. Mm. Uh, and so I had a, a normal distribution for the prior for um, 
the log odds ratio, and that normal distribution was centered at zero. And so I made the variance of the normal distribution such that there wasn't much chance that the effect was large. Mm. And I had a way to quantify that. But the bottom line was using a method that was not, I, I thought there was, was too conservative, but using a model that, that was skeptical but not quite as extreme, my calculation was that the evidence for any efficacy was this 0.999 sort of thing. And the evidence for uh, clinically important efficacy were important. It was either a risk reduction of um, 0.02 or 0.05, and I can't remember what I was using. But I came up with a posterior probability of a of a large clinical reduction of 0.7. So it is it is a good message for readers to understand of a paper like this that when you're you know this age-old argument of statistical versus clinical significance. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. So p-values don't really give you clinical significance, but the Bayesian posterior probabilities give you evidence not just against something, but they give you evidence in favor of something, and not just something. They give you evidence in favor of all possible somethings. Mm. So what is the evidence in favor of any level of efficacy? Yes. And just the fact that you were to demonstrate a signal and a non-zero benefit, having only 41,000 patients was not enough, ironically, to have the evidence for a big clinical effect. I see. So I, so I agree qualitatively with what they did, not quantitatively. But I think that their point is really right. To, you, you don't have evidence with a 1% mortality reduction from accelerated dose of TPA, yeah. you don't have evidence um, of something greater than a 1% absolute reduction. Hmm. And uh, the way to think about it is, let's suppose you observed exactly a 1% reduction and you're doing all the analysis on the risk difference scale like that. Um, if, your po if your prior distribution is the typical kind that we use, your posterior distribution is going to have a peak near 0.01 reduction. Right. So the probability of a reduction greater than 0.01 is going to be in the 0.5 range. At best. About half at of best. That. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be in the 0.5 range. So if you, if your observed point estimate is about what you think is the minimally clinically relevant difference, your posterior probability is going to be uncertain. Hmm. It's going to be very honest and clinically informative that you don't know enough about whether you have definitely exceeded the minimally clinical clinical effect. I see, um, but I, I think what you're talking about also illustrates the importance of I mean, it, importance of what your prior is because you're saying that you know you did the analysis with a slightly uh, less less um, nihilistic but still skeptical prior and then your yeah. your numbers were you know 70% posterior probability they're giving a 30% posterior probability so the prior probability right. the prior probability matters a great deal it's still not big enough yeah. it's still not big enough for for full clinical um, you know confidence in the result let me ask you this in in a bayesian method what is the pro what is the posterior probability of a clinically meaningful benefit that that is actionable? Wh where do where do Bayesians think that now we can do it? Is it seventy percent, eighty percent, ninety percent? What's the is there a, is there a cutoff or is it all um, sort of judgment? So I, I wanted to address this uh, by addressing something you you discussed with Alan. Yeah. 
a bit. Uh, and, and I think there was one point that you guys didn't get quite right. Good. Okay. Um, and so, and so the point was why is why did Bay seem to be so different in this other paper from the BMJ Open? Um, and, and so there, there's one simple reason why the Bayes uh, seem to be different, and that is uh, Bayesian evidential assessments are directional. So the evidence you're trying to bring is evidence for efficacy. The only time you try to bring evidence for harm is if you're creating a weapon. Right. So if you have a weapon you want to be able to use in combat, you'd like to demonstrate lethality. But most people are not going to be excited to write a paper saying we now have statistical evidence for harm. Right. But but a two-sided p-value is penalizing you for uh, the fact that you might have wanted to write a paper because you want this drug to be used in combat situations <laughs> against the enemy. Okay. So it's the two-sided p-value is a multiplicity adjustment yes. for having the opportunity to claim a mortality worsening. Right, but no one's going to claim that. Yeah. Nobody's claiming that. Nobody's interested. The drug would would just be pulled. Yeah. You know, you're not going to market that drug. Yeah. So Bayesian methods are directional. And so you're going to get a posterior probability that's more impressive um, than what the p-value indicates. Just by nature is you're not going to be wasting your time claiming uh, a mortality increase. So the fact that it's directional in the clinical direction you actually care about gives Bayes an instant boost over uh uh, statistical significance testing but then there's a more fundamental issue more related to your comment which is let's suppose you had compared treatment a with b and you randomized 100 patients to each treatment and let's suppose that uh, in one of the treatments you observe 30 deaths and another one you observe 40 deaths um, and let's suppose the p-value is not quite significant by somebody's criterion uh, but you know that your mom was being evaluated, and these two treatments are both available to the doctor. Uh, and do you voice an opinion about which of those drugs or treatments your mom should get? So most people would say, I have, I have a feeling for what playing the odds means. And the odds that I'm going to play is I would tell the doctor that um, – the treatment that had 30 instead of 40 deaths is the one that has the greater chance of being better. Mm -hmm. So the posterior probability that A is better than B is going to be greater than 0.5. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're playing the odds, you wanted to optimize your your gain or your outcome. If the posterior probability was 0.51, you would you might play the odds. Uh, and say, let me have the drug that had in this small clinical trial, it had fewer deaths. Okay. So what you what you take by evidence in terms of what you would recommend for your mom is going to be different than what a regulator means, but it still sheds a lot of light on, on how decisions are made and, uh, and why um, when you're making the decision require a very high probability of efficacy, such as 0.95, Point nine nine. In your mind, you're bringing in other factors. You're not just playing the odds, but you're saying, well, this new drug is going to have a big price tag, mm -hmm. uh, something that had a 0.51 chance of being better than the other drug. Uh, playing the odds, we'd still use it, but if we had to pay for it, maybe not. I see. If it had some toxicity, maybe not. I see. So by the time you bring in all the other things, people are going to want evidence of 0 0.95, 0 0.99 probability, and that sort of thing. Does I see. that Answer yes, I see. What that that gets at it. 
And so like in a regulatory setting, people will want to get into the 0.9 range, 0.95, 0.99 maybe. And, and I've heard really smart people at FDA say something very sensible. That is, if you have a rare disease and there's no treatment options and you were able to show in a Bayesian analysis that the probability is 0.7 with no other treatment alternatives, we're going to jump on the 0.7 and say, yeah, that it's probably worth using if the drug doesn't have any serious quality of life or other detriments. I see. And that's probably what they did with... Um Lartruvo, or this recent drug in cancer medicine. Let's let's talk for a second about the BMJ Open paper, the um, the reanalysis of Optimize. Yeah, I think this is a really nice reanalysis, and it brings up a lot of points. So, where do you want to start? I don't know. You you start with what what you think the interesting points are that it brings up. Yeah. Well. They didn't say this explicitly, but what one of the things that's going through this is what I mentioned about directional evidentiary assessments and and why do you Ellen was very worried that you go from a 0.07 p value to something that uh, 0.97 probability of efficacy um, and that's really not surprising. So we're we're not interested in getting evidence for for hurting patients. Right. We want to know the evidence for helping. So we're directional, we're one-tailed in that way. So that's one of the points that goes through this. And then they use different um, uh, priors and they used uh, meta-analysis, which is sometimes a good way to form a prior. Um, and then they show how the results are sensitive. Uh, but I think to me, the most important thing to realize is that the original paper uh, that they are reanalyzing made a mistake. And that mistake was, uh, I, I don't have the wording in front of me, but I think they worded the conclusion as saying um, the, no the, difference, the yeah. treatment didn't work. Yep, yep, more so we, we know, we all know from Twitter, or we all should know by now, the, the famous Doug Altman paper, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. But that error is made every day in major medical journals, and it's made in New England Journal more than any I know. Uh, and so this idea of using the 0.07 to say that you know something is, is a mistake. So we know that a p-value brings evidence against something and never in, in favor of anything. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't bring evidence in favor of no effect. Right. So that's another important part of this. Before you get into the real Bayesian machinery, um, and then you get into the discussion about, you know, how much do you trust the meta-analysis from previous studies? And I think that's a great discussion to have, and Bayes gives you a way to do that, and it gives you a way to explicitly discount uh, the previous research. And then you get, uh, they have this amazing figure um, in this BMJ Open paper, figure three, which is the point I was making earlier, that... Um, what frequentist is trying to do is to say, um, uh, do we have evidence for what the effect is not? Yeah. So we're trying to bring evidence against the effect being zero or yeah. the null hypothesis. Uh, that's really not clinically significant, and it's indirect evidence. So here you have direct evidence, um, and the direct evidence is what's the evidence for a, an effect in the right direction? of any level. 
So you start with the one, which is a, a relative risk of one, meaning no effect, yeah. all the way to a point four, yeah. which is like a 60% reduction in the risk. And so you have the probabilities of all possible effects. And that uh -huh. is a very, very rich description that you simply don't get in the frequentist approach. And it basically shows the possibility of a 30% or more, a 0.7 effect size or lower um, relative risk is zero, is there's no probability of that. But the probability that it's a modest effect size is, is high. Right, and the probability of any effect is high. The probability of any effect is high. The probability of an extreme major effect, zero. Probability of a modest effect, good. Right, so the amount of information here per square millimeter is so high compared to what you get from a p-value or a confidence limit. Let me ask you some questions that maybe not just about this but kind of broader to, to kind of get your sense of it. I, get, I guess one question I have for you, sort of a bigger question, is um, about the process of, of clinical trials in science, which is, I mean, I think maybe part of the reason why people are pushing for very stringent, um, you know, dichotomous endpoints kind of thing. Part of the reason why that is where that motivation comes from is people feel like there are so many players in the trial space who are um, craving any opportunity to claim success. They'll hang their hat on anything, a, a, you know, an endpoint that you never really even thought was important at the outset. If it turned out that that was drifted in the favor of the intervention, well, suddenly it's all about that endpoint. So and also the human desire to like, you know, advance and make progress. And I guess my question to you is, um, I guess if, if you're in an ecosystem where people want to sell products, want to claim success, um, is the Bayesian system more easily gamed? Does it allow people to say, you know, we don't need to adjust for multiplicity. We don't need to pre-specify, um, you know, this is something that there's a, there's a good likelihood it works to some degree. It, it is gameable. It's easily gameable and easily the, – the perpetrator is easily caught. Okay. The gaming is staring you in the face. So you'll see the prior. You'll see how it entered into the calculation. You'll see what they interpreted. Um, it, it is so – rational and so out in the open that um, it really will lower the amount of gaming that we see now with crazy multiplicity adjustments and so on. I see. Uh, but I think there's more fundamental things to the Bayesian approach. Um, and I had, um, so let me give you an example. I'm involved in design of a lot of big clinical trials. One, one of them uh, we had a, a year of teleconferences to nail down the endpoints and a few other design characteristics. Endless discussion, primary endpoint, do you have co-primary endpoint, what's secondary, do you have uh, co-primary, secondary endpoints. It's all a game. Uh -huh. And it's motivated by alpha spending. Yeah. And it's motivated by misunderstanding of evidence. Okay. And so, and just as a side comment, a paper that I'm always tweeting about is a classic paper by Cook and Farewell that said, if you're a frequentist, the way to handle multiplicity is you have a priority ordering uh, of all the hypotheses you want to test, and you always report them in that order, but you report everything. Okay. And you publicize them in the order that was pre-specified. 
And so you always keep the context. So there's ways to deal with multiplicity much more simply and rationally in the frequentist world. But the Bayesian has a, a whole different approach to this. And so what a Bayesian would do is say, we don't want to pick exercise duration as our first endpoint just because it has the highest power. Okay. We want to provide the evidence that this drug improves your exercise capacity. Uh, we don't want to say that the death endpoint is not important uh, just because it has lower power. We're very interested in mortality. We want to find out if this drug lowers mortality. Then you come up with your priors for each of these endpoints, and then you calculate posterior probabilities. Each of these posterior probabilities has complete meaning uh, regardless of which other probabilities you calculate it. And that's one of the greatest beauties of posterior probabilities. They stand on their own, whereas when you get into type 1 error and family-wise error rates, yeah. each, each p-value does not stand on its own anymore. Right. This is actually, this is something that has massive impact, and it goes further than that. So think about um, having multiple endpoints in a clinical trial, uh, so a good example is uh, migraine headache trials. So they typically have four or five endpoints. So they have uh, uh, severity of migraines when they occur. They have um, so they have a pain outcome. They have vision disturbance. They have nausea and vomiting. Uh, probably sleep disturbance, and I'm I'm missing one. And so how many of those targets a drug needs to hit to be approved for a migraine headache is Subject to some debate, often the FDA wants the sponsor to hit all of those targets to show you have a signal in the right direction for all of them and may be statistically significant. So what would the Bayesians say to that? Well, the Bayesians don't calculate things that are simple to calculate. They calculate things that are hard to calculate, which means you have much more flexibility in calculating more interesting things. So let's say you had five possible outcomes of a migraine headache treatment and you decided that it was clinically and population relevant uh, that if you hit any three of those five, you're going to be called a successful treatment for migraine headaches. And we don't have to say which three. And we may not know enough to say which three, and we get tired of just picking the one that has the most statistical power a priori as number one. But what's the posterior probability that you hit any three out of five of those endpoints? And if that posterior probability is 0.95 or 0.99 or something, you might say you've got a winner on your hands. And the fact that you couldn't tell me ahead of time which three it was, I don't care because I've got a probability that you hit at least three out of five, and that's very, very clinically relevant. So I, I want to translate that to your world um, in, in uh, cancer clinical trials. Uh, you could use the Bayesian approach to be much more rational than the way we currently are. So you might say uh, a new chemotherapy is going to be of interest if it has, um, if your probability of a benefit on relapse-free survival exceeds 0.95 or the probability of an overall survival benefit exceeds 0.8. So that would be a very rational double criterion. I see where you don't require the same evidence for all-cause mortality reduction with a chemotherapy, you could say, um, what is the Bayesian posterior probability of uh, benefiting on the recurrence-free survival and not having a severe toxicity? So I, right. I need to have dual 
condition satisfied, and I want that joint probability to be above 0.9. Right. Or I could say I want the recurrence, a free survival benefit to exceed 20%, and I want the probability of exceeding 20% to be 0.9 or greater. I see. So, so think about how you would state these things clinically, write, at, write down what event that was, and calculate the Bayesian posterior probability of it, and you can really see the difference with the frequentist approach. So not only multiplicity, but compound uh, clinical endpoints. But if you did a compound thing, that's very interesting. So you do a compound clinical endpoint like that. Then how do you go from there to calculating your sample size and those sorts of things? So that does add a lot of burden. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the idea of Bayesian power, though, is is a lot simpler than frequentist power. So Bayesian power is taken by many... Bayesian statisticians to mean what's the probability that your posterior probability will ever be above 0.9 or 0.95, whatever. And so you can do simulations. You can do calculations in simple cases like things with conjugate priors and all. Otherwise, you do a whole lot of simulations. So Bayesians spend a lot of computer time doing simulations. I see. So it's it's like a, I see. But now let's go to the frequentist. Let's say a frequentist wanted to do this. The frequentist is saying, I want to know, I want a drug that either improves relapse-free survival by two percentage points or overall survival by, you know, three percentage points uh, or one percentage point. Um, they can con- conceivably design and power a study to look for that. But then you're into a co-primary know, endpoint. I don't know how to do it. I've been practicing statistics <laughs> for a lot of decades, and I don't know how to do that. And, and I was a frequentist for many, many years. I see. So if you asked uh, a frequent statistician how to do that, they would have great difficulty. I see. There are some um, uh, composite testing procedures. They're very complex. Yeah. We tend to be much better at testing null hypotheses and because the model simplifies and you can even do it by hand than we are testing non-null hypotheses, which is what you mentioned. I see. So then let me ask you this about the Bayesian method. Let, let's say you're in the FDA setting. How important will it be for a company that uses a Bayesian methodology to pre-specify everything? Is pre-spec is do you, you do you believe in the importance of pre-specification there? I think uh, pre-specification is is really important in almost every setting, uh, and especially when working with uh, regulatory. So I think pre-specifying priors, where you have all the discussions with FDA and with your uh, mechanism of action experts such as pharmacologists and your clinical experts um, and you have all those discussions up front so you don't have this argument later so you want to get that settled you want to remove the opportunity for people to criticize you for playing with things and to me where the freedom comes in with Bayes is with Bayes you can do infinitely many looks at the data and you can decide at any point that you have enough evidence and you can trigger uh, a successful trial or trigger a determination of futility. So there's there's no such thing as uh, a multiplicity across time in the Bayesian world. And wh- why it, is that? That's one thing I don't understand why. Yeah. It's a very simple thing that you're um, when you when you keep accruing patients and you reanalyze the data, you're getting a, a new posterior probability. And the posterior probability, the posterior distribution will get more sharp over time. It may move around a little bit in its center, but it'll get more peaked over time. And once you calculate the posterior probability after 40 patients have been accrued, 
the posterior probability that you calculated after 39 patients is now irrelevant. It's been outdated. So something that's now outdated, it's been replaced by new information. Mm -hmm. The new information is all you need to know, and it has full meaning. It I is, see. It's perfect, perfectly calibrated. What happens with the, the frequentist world is you're not calculating the probability of an unknown. You're calculating the probability of data. And the more looks you have, the more opportunities you have for data to be extreme. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But Bayesians are not calculating probabilities of data being extreme. They're calculating the probabilities of efficacy. And so the the way to really understand that to me is to is to envision how a Bayesian would cheat. So the way a Bayesian would cheat is you get a posterior probability of 0.96, and you were hoping for better. Yeah. Uh, and you add more patients and you get a 0.94 and you revert back to the 0.96. So you're valid, you're, you're invalidating or violating the principle of using available data. Yeah. I now see. you're censoring the data because you don't like the new data. You're going to pretend you didn't accrue those new patients. Right, you're going right. to go back to the previous. That's, that's, that's a no, no. I see. I see. So I, I, I guess let me ask you your thoughts real quick on these other two concepts that people keep promoting. The one concept this uh, that Sander Greenland and others have written in Nature, abandoned statistical significance. So this is sort of like a, a sort of, I don't know, a, maybe a middle ground or something where we say we're going to be frequentist, but we're not going to use the p-value as this very rigid, um, you know, dichotomous cutoff. What do you think about that? Well, Sander always knows what he's talking about, and this is a big improvement. And, you know, one of the worst things about p-values is that people have dichotomized them and that there's a, a nice historical argument that explains how that was tied to uh, post-war economy in England. There's an interesting story there. Oh, okay. But um, the dichotomization is, is really the worst of all possible worlds because it, it's just silly, it's arbitrary, it's not, not good for decision making. Um, but I still think that uh, anything we do with with sample space and envisioning repetitions and um, calculating p-values and confidence intervals is going to be problematic. And I think um, the Bayesian solution is just so much cleaner. Hmm. Uh, but I do applaud anything that gets us away from significance testing because it's been a total unmitigated disaster. And and then the, the other movement to make the p-value more stringent by adding a zero, point oh oh five, you I guess you would be critical of that. You think it would discard a lot of useful information? Yeah, it's just it just creates a different level of game playing. So right now we have serious uh, publication bias in the literature. Yes, yes. Because uh, it's a selection bias towards the more extreme observed data. Yes. And so when you put it together, you find the the flu treatment Tamiflu doesn't any doesn't do anything like you thought it did. Right. And various other treatments, especially depression therapies, you know, they seem to get less effective over time as you include more studies and so on. So. Um, it, it creates more of a selection bias, and there, there would be game playing at the margin. So people that had a p-value of 0.006, you know, they're going to be playing the same games as we did around the 0.06. And so any threshold is going to be terrible. And so one way to discuss this that might shed some light on it is the idea that I'd like to write a blog article about, which is 
there was a wonderful editorial in Annals of Internal Medicine called Against Diagnosis. Mm -hmm. uh, diabetes is a prime example where having a, di a diagnosis is actually harmful to decision making. It's all a matter of degree of diabetes. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's true of various other diseases. So I want to write a blog called Against Inference. So the the whole idea of inference or trying to draw conclusions um, and, and, and making kind of yes-no decisions is not the way humans live for the most part. We actually live by playing the odds. So do you cross a busy street? Is it worth, you to, is it, worth it to save some time and take the risk of being hit by a car? Are you going to go without an umbrella when you leave the house and it's a 30% chance of rain? You're playing the odds. And so we actually get some pretty darn good decision making when you play the odds. And playing the odds is exactly what the posterior distribution is doing. It's not necessarily giving you an inference. I see. It gives you the uncertainty you have about all possible values of efficacy. And if you want to act as if the drug is efficacious, the posterior probability when you take one minus that gives you the probability that you're making a mistake. Right. So you're you're playing the odds, and that's the way humans live for the most part is playing the odds. And you can play odds without having what looks like statistical inference. I see. Um, and then the only thing to add to that might be that we play odds, but sometimes if one of those odds options is like the the Nicholas Taleb thing if one of those options is something very catastrophic although quite infrequent sometimes we might prioritize that in our minds and be very cautious to avoid to eat, you know keep that as low as possible right and that's really the way we internalize this is we have a loss function or cost or utility function that we only roughly have a view of in our minds but the utility function that you're enunciating is one that would be more like mini-max or yes, mini you know, max, avoiding, yeah. avoiding catastrophic things at all costs. Yes. Uh, whereas other people would say, well, we just can't afford to do that and we, we only have limited resources. We're going to have to calculate a loss function that allows us to do things in the most cost-effective way. So that would be on the other end of the utility function spectrum. So let's say somebody did, you know, we, we've been talking about prospective clinical trials and probably for the most part controlled clinical trials. What about the application of Bayesian analysis to uh, retrospective observational studies? Um, is it doable? Does it make sense? And maybe if I give a concrete example, what if somebody, you know, there've been a number of studies that looked at the outcomes of patients based on the characteristics of doctors. Um, what if there was a study that looked at to see whether or not do, do, you know, retrospectively, do Medicare beneficiaries who are trained for by doctors who graduated from Ivy League medical schools, do they do better than doctors who graduate from Big Ten medical schools? Um, could you use a Bayesian statistical framework there? Does that make sense in this retrospective observational data set? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think um, there's two ways to use Bayesian thinking there. One is uh, we know that we're getting burned by observational research on a variety of fronts and nutritional epidemiology probably being at the forefront. Mm -hmm. You can use a prior distribution that encodes extreme skepticism on the effect. So you're just going to 
you're going to have a very concrete way to say what the data must say to overcome skepticism. Now, Nate Silver, in his amazing book, The Signal and the Noise, goes through this from the standpoint of cigarette smoking and lung cancer Mm -hmm. and how you would overcome observational data by bringing skepticism into the association. Uh, It's a a great case study. So I think that's one way. The other way Bayes comes into play is Bayes really is the – has the only true formalization of how to handle missing data. So when Don Rubin created multiple imputation, that's really a a frequentist approximation to a full Bayesian method, and he wanted it to be available and, and save some computation time. But the general solution is Bayesian method. So if you look in um, this amazing book that many people are discovering, uh, Richard McElreath's book, Statistical Rethinking. Mm-hmm. This is an intro stat book. It's meant to be your first stat book, but you will think about stat unbelievably differently if you started with that book versus a standard stat book. So in that book, he covers things like um, what's the probability that the first model is more correct than the second model? Mm -hmm. Uh, What happens when you have missing data? And so uh, the Bayes method gives you a way to formalize what you don't know and what effect it has on what you're trying to find out. So, for example, you're you're trying to see if um, if something about doctors is influencing their patient outcomes, where there could be a lot of unmeasured confounders, right? And you could actually model that in a Bayesian sense uh, to get that kind of uncertainty brought in. And uh, now, what McElreath um, describes in beautiful, intuitive uh, words is the case when you have something that's measured in at least some of the people. You know, you, you might have the explanatory factors available on a small subset of the patients, but it's missing in a lot. So the standard missing data problem. So it's harder when it's missing on everyone because you didn't collect the variable. Right. right. I think the Bayesian approach to bringing all uncertainties that you know about into the final result, including uh, Reith has a great uh, discussion of measurement error. So you've got a you've got a physical characteristic of patients that you're factoring in the diagnosis, and you know that that physical um, exam uh, and what you're noticing about the patient is sometimes wrong. Mm-hmm. And so, what's the effect of having measurement error in that characteristic on your ultimate diagnostic model? Mm-hmm. So Bayes has a real way to incorporate measurement error that's more formal and more intuitive than most of the other approaches that are used, which are a little bit indirect. I see. Let me ask you this question. Let's say, hypothetically, I give you a, you know, a, a, an Excel spreadsheet. And in the spreadsheet, I tell you, all I tell you is that this is, a, this is data from a randomized control trial of A versus B. I don't tell you what A and B are. And it's time to event data. And I give time to event data for a couple things, for survival, for, let's say, you know, progression-free survival. I give you some toxicity data um, in, the two, in the two arms of the study, rates of, you know, this is maybe just dichotomous data, rates of neutropenia, rates of diarrhea, things like that. And I give you this data set, and I tell you, we ran this trial, but I don't tell you much about it. There's no statistical analysis plan. Now, let's say, in the hypothetical, which I don't know the answer to, so I'm asking you, um, 
I give it to like 20 teams of using a frequentist methodology. And I ask them to calculate, um, you know, calculate the, uh, the P value for the overall survival difference between the two arms. Um, you know, I guess my first question would be, do, do you believe that they're, they're, most of those teams are going to get the same answer in this data set? Uh. I don't think so. Okay. I, I give you the the Gusto one study is a good example. Uh, you quoted the one percent mortality reduction, and it was an odds ratio of something like 0.85. Yeah. So that was pre-specified as an unadjusted analysis. If you do the adjusted analysis, which takes into account outcome heterogeneity within treatment group. Yeah. You get a more impressive treatment effect than what we were discussing earlier. I see. That's something the people that did the Bayesian reanalysis did not take into account because it wasn't pre-specified as the primary analysis. It should have been. We yeah. should always do the adjusted analysis. And then so you'll have some statisticians doing an adjusted survival comparison, some doing unadjusted, and the ones that do adjusted, they have different ways of adjusting. I see. I see. So, so by the time you've you you will get some variation there. You will get some variation. Okay, now within frequentism. within frequentism. I want to come back to that adjustment. Okay, but now if I did it, gave it to a Bayesian group of people, and and I told them nothing about the treatments, so they don't know anything about it. They can't do a meta analysis. They have no prior. How will they approach it? They'll also. I mean, I believe they'll come to different ideas, uh, or maybe they won't. I don't know. What do you think there? Well, you would you would encounter some Bayesians that would say, if we don't know anything, we're going to use a flat prior. Yes, yes. Um, and that is something Andrew Gelman has written a lot about. He has an amazing blog, andrewgelman.com, and he shows that if when you use a flat prior, which means you, you're allowing big effects to be as likely as small effects, you actually get a lot of wildness in your analysis. And, and that includes all frequentist analysis, because they're essentially not putting any favoritism on the effects. They're allowing wild odds ratios. Um, so some would say use a flat prior because we don't know anything, but that really allows for things like uh, you know a hazard ratio of zero, maybe, or something wild. And so I don't really think that's a good idea. So I don't really like to say we don't know anything. But then what, you didn't give me any context. If it was the context of cancer chemotherapies, uh, I would I would have a bias going into it that, that the effect is going to be pretty small mm -hmm. because the failure rate over the world of chemotherapies has been pretty high. Yes. Uh, and the, the net clinical benefit has been not as you've written about, not overly impressive in so many situations. So I would project my own bias uh, from just knowing if I knew it was from that realm of cancer chemotherapies, I would start using a fairly skeptical prior, but I wouldn't put a spike at zero. But I would say that the probability that your hazard ratio is less than a half is 0.05 or less. I see. Um, and now back to touch on your earlier point. Um, this is part of, I've seen a number of nice threads on statistical misconceptions. Um, one of those misconceptions is that in a randomized trial, it's wrong to adjust for baseline covariates, uh, which of course it's not wrong to. Um, and, and, but you've, you and others have made the case that um, if you pre-specify those baseline covariates, um, that you should always adjust for baseline covariates in a randomized trial. Uh, it improves precision. Can you explain why it does that and why you should always do that? 
Yeah, it's just uh, the statistical explanation is there. there is a statistical sin that you can commit. The sin in statistics is to have an explainable phenomenon that you refuse to explain. Mm-hmm. So if you have some of your deaths are explainable by people being older and you choose to ignore age, uh, you have failed to explain easily explainable outcome variation, and that is a statistical sin. But the reason it, it it backfires on you, if you just think about the picture you may have seen when analysis of covariance was first introduced to you, you're, you have more of a continuous outcome on the y-axis, and you have something like age on the x-axis, and then you have two lines, and what separates those lines is the treatment effect. The, the vertical distance the, the, the vertical distance between these two lines is your treatment effect adjusted for age. The, the treatment effect unadjusted for age is where the points on that vertical line project on the y-axis. Mm-hmm. So if you bring all those points from the right, uh, which are splayed along the age, yeah. and ignore age and you project them on the y-axis, you get this bigger variation. Right. So your standard deviation goes up because you fail to explain easily explainable outcome variation due to knowing their age. You're refusing to know the age even though you measured it on all these patients. Right, right. So once you measure something that explains outcome variation and you don't use it, you're going you're gonna to have a much bigger sigma squared. Like, like if you're doing an asthma study and you have lung function as your outcome, nobody doing asthma studies would fail to adjust for pretreatment lung function. Right, right. It would never be that dumb. Sometimes they build it into the endpoint where the endpoint is changing lung function at the individual level. So they adjust for it in that way. Yeah, which is a poor way to adjust for it, but it's better than just using the second lung function. I see. But the analysis of covariance would not assume the slope is a 1. And it would not assume the baseline lung function is linearly related to the final lung function. So analysis of covariance, it gives you the most power, and it's more general than just taking the difference from baseline. Another one of the statistical uh, 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 misconceptions or classic errors is to put the p-values in table one, which is oh ironic. My. Oh my! <laughs> and 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 that's and that's for the simple reason that this is the p-value is literally telling you the probability that if if this was due to chance, you'd see this result or a more extreme result. But in this case, that probability is one because it is due to chance because you've randomized. Isn't that fair to say? Exactly right. And if you think about what your population inference is. Think about the world where half the people in the world are randomized treatment A have to be. They have perfect balance. And like you said, you already know the truth. So you, since you know the population inference is balance, because if you randomized billions of people to each one, it's going to be the same mean to like eight decimal places or right. five right. decimal places. Um you already know the no hypothesis is true. So statistical inference is irrelevant. Irrelevant. In that situation, I see. The New England Journal is pushing people to do that, and that is—that's a crazy decision. <laughs> I agree. Um, okay, so so back to this Bayes thing. I just want one more thought here. Is okay. So this was like a randomized trial of whether or not following sort of a protocol for how do you keep blood pressure up um, is superior to sort of the standard of care. Um, 
And I guess one of the things that they did in determining their prior was they looked at prior studies that did this um, within the population they studied, which I think was like surgical patients. And one of the questions I had was, you know, like why limit it to that subpopulation? This is a broad literature. There's so many studies of like goal-directed hemodynamic resuscitation. Why not include all of them, even if they're not necessarily in that particular kind of surgical setting that, that you care about? And I guess the answer is, you know, this is something that falls within the realm of clinical judgment and, you know, there's not a statistical answer here. But I guess my question for the Bayesians is in these scenarios where other people come to the table and they say, oh, well, you know, you should have included all this stuff in your prior. How does a Bayesian um, treat that situation uh, after the fact? You run the trial, you, you got the results and somebody comes to the table and say, I, I disagree with your prior. Uh, yeah, how how would you how would you respond to that person? Well, there's there's two way to respond. Uh, two ways. The first is to say, okay, you can redo the calculation using your prior, and you'll have your posterior. The one we presented is the one that we happen to have conferences with FDA, and we settled it. on it mutually. But you can always have a different interpretation based on your belief and your interpretation of prior evidence. The second point is, if you look at how this is actually handled in the frequentist world, you have what people call objective analyses that are that are anything but objective, but where the subjectivity really comes to bite you is in the actioning or the interpretation of the result. So you're getting ready to interpret a p-value of 0.03, and you have this uh, meta-analysis, and then somebody says, well, the meta-analysis was too pessimistic and maybe it should have also included this more positive study. And so now, how do you handle that p-value of 0.03? There's no machinery to do it. It's seat of the pants. It's a bunch of people in the back room talking. Mm -hmm. And they bring in this ultra-subjective, informal incorporation of this prior evidence at the last stage. And the study can actually influence their interpretation of the 0.03. And here's what really should scare uh, clinical research leaders, is that if somebody really doesn't like your result, and they really don't like this new drug, and they think you're going you're gonna to make too much money off of it, whatever, mm-hmm. they're going to bring in some study that you forgot, or they're going to say you should reweight some study that you included, uh, because they don't like your result. Right. So the chance of subjectivity and bias in the frequentist world frequently exceeds that in the Bayesian world. I see. I see. What do you think about, I've seen people do sort of a hybrid, uh, what I call a poor man's Bayesian calculation, where they say, um, you know, the right way to interpret a study is you say, um, of all these cancer drugs we're testing, there's like a 5% chance anyone will work. You run 100 trials with 80% power and a p-value of 0.05, and then they make like a simple two-by-two table and say, you know, based on the prior probability that the drug would work, we know that of significant trials that pass that p of 0.05 cutoff, uh, you know, that there's only a certain chance you would catch a true positive and a false positive, and that the post-test probability is like 45% or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, maybe I'm... Maybe my analogy is not. Maybe I, I. It's a. It's it's a visual thing. Maybe I'm doing a lousy yeah. job of kind of describing it. But some people try to take a frequentist using the power and the alpha and basically do a two by two table for a bunch of trials. Um, what do you think about that kind of method? I don't think that's too helpful. And I'll give you an analogy. If yeah. you're 
if you were taught to do diagnostic, probabilistic diagnosis using Bayes' rule, yes. which is really a poor way to teach it, in my view, that's a, for another discussion, um, you get into this idea of what's the prevalence of the disease, and you have to define that to use Bayes' rule. Um, and the, the idea of prevalence of disease is actually very ill-defined. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very similar to what you're discussing. Yes. And so um, I think it's very ad hoc. I don't think it's very useful. But you do need to distinguish whether you're talking about, say, drugs in the same class versus drugs in general. And drugs drugs for the same disease but in a different class of action. Yeah. So just pooling a ton of drugs that are not that related, not in the same class, you know, I would have more problems with that than if you had – like in cardiology, you have, you know, these distinct mechanisms of action. Um, if if you wanted to pool things from a class that is really the same class that the new drug is in, I would have less of a problem with that, but I wouldn't do it using that two-by-two two table. I would do it by formally creating a prior distribution from the class, and then I would specify the applicability of the class, which would tell me a mixing proportion between that informative prior and a skeptical prior. I see. And then I'm forming a new prior. I might say that the previous class data are 70% applicable to the new situation. And I'm going to now have this prior that's a mixture of a skeptical and a class prior. I'm going to bring that formally into the Bayesian. It formalizes everything. You have to do your thinking up front. All of your fist fights occur in the design stage. Right. Mm-hmm. And when you get to the interpretation stage, it's much cleaner and there's fewer fights. I see. Well, I have my only last question for you, and then I'll let you go because I appreciate your time. My last question for you is, is there an example of the FDA having used a Bayesian framework for a drug and brought it to market through that way, through that mechanism? I think there was. There have been very few examples of that. Of course, there's been a lot in the device world because the the, the devices and radiologic health is all Bayesian oh, really? at FDA. Oh, so they've really broken a lot of ground. But in terms of drugs, it's been very limited. I think there's been something in the pediatric world because it's more acceptable to people who are suspicious of Bayes to realize you need to use adult data uh, for diseases diseases that occur in both children and adults I see. Uh, to get any kind of information base. So that's probably where more has happened. What about but, off the top of your head? Is there a device you know off the top of your head that used um, used the Bayesian method? Yeah, there's a ton of devices. I just don't work in that world I to see. have any to name. Okay. But their uh, they their their statisticians are highly Bayesian there. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. I, I did want to leave you with one yes. global thought yes. uh, because I think it's very important to understand it. We haven't really talked explicitly about it, but uh, what the frequentist world is doing, it's really could be called sampling statistics, or you're envisioning repetitions of an experiment. And there's some good papers showing that that idea of repetition is not as simple as it seems because every clinical trial you've probably been involved in, there's been a protocol change. Yes. So when you're envisioning repetitions, you'd have to envision repetitions with that protocol change. Yes. And you'd have to duplicate everything as it was executed, not yes. how it was designed. Right, right. So that, that idea of repetition... Um, in order to show that the data are surprising if the null hypothesis is true, is actually pretty nuanced. But what the Bayesian approach is doing is to say, 
uh, we have data in front of us. We need the data were generated by an unknown truth. The unknown truth came from two sources. It came from patient-specific factors that we don't even know how to measure, and that's why uh, patients disagree with each other in their survival and their other outcomes. Yeah. We have pa- so we have patient-patient variability that's completely unexplained, uh, and then we have the treatment. And so the the data are generated by a mechanism that's a combination of the patient-patient variability that we can't model because we don't know enough, and the treatment effect. So what the Bayesian approach is saying from this one data set, which may never be recreated in another trial, what can we find as a hidden truth? The hidden truth we're trying to uncover is the treatment effect that generated this one data set. And so the idea of what the base is actually trying to do um, is actually much more clear. It's Mm. trying to uncover hidden truths, even if it was a one-time event, uh, a one-time data set, and then it's able to quantify all possible values of efficacy, not just quantify the evidence against one value. Yeah. I guess I would say that, um, you know, you point out that figure three in this paper. I I guess I would say I agree with you. I really like this figure because, um, you know, we all in our minds might think, like, what's the effect I want to see? And I want to know what the probability of that effect or a bigger effect is. And that might be different for you than for me. And and this graph, I can, we can, we both can see what we want to see. Uh, So that's really well done in this, in this BMJ. I love that. It's got something for everyone because you could. You might, for public health benefit, or uh, what, whether you put a new drug on a formulary, you might have a different criterion than right. you do for an individual patient decision. So it's got something for everyone. Right. Well, um, I appreciate that, and I think readers can 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 take a look at that. And then, I, you know, I hope to revisit this issue again because I think, I mean, I think it's a very it's fascinating and, and very interesting. And I think, um, you know, I I I I I. I I'm not. I'm not sure. I've wrapped my head around it a hundred percent, but but perhaps perhaps someday I will, and then I too will be a, will be a convert. Uh, Dr. Harold, th- <laughs> thank you so much for um, taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on this podcast and talk to us. Vinay, thanks for having me so much. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was great talking to you. Great talking to you. Take care. You too. You've been listening to season two of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.